you quite frankly, I think the only way you can approach something like Christmas, the only way you can approach something like Christmas is to take Christ completely out of it. In other words, I, I've preached a sermon on this subject that it's, it's I think um, the uh, Mount Olive Library has it, but so my approach to that is not to try to put Christ back into Christmas, but to take him out completely and just leave Christmas for what it is, just a good pagan American holiday. It has nothing to do with religious value. Now, of course, if you want to associate that with certain religious values, sharing with others, loving your family, even the coming of Jesus Christ, well, I mean, that's your prerogative, but there's certainly no religious value to it or requirement to it. And so, you see what I'm saying? I want to look upon these things as matters indifferent. Yes, sir. That's right. That's right. Precisely. That's right. I think that's right. Um, however, I must answer you that in, to this degree, there are some people who would say, to the glory of God, they do need to know about these things, or to the glory of God, um, their children can collect candy on Halloween or something like that. Uh, and that's what has to be debated. That's why we have commandments, you see, in the Bible to help us understand what the glory of God does require. You see, I'm not in any sense trying to mitigate the separation in all these things. You all know me well enough to, to recognize that, I trust. But what I am trying to say is we must understand to what degree and in what way we do separate. And um, having a she-she... I mean, if somebody said, boy, I'm really keeping the first commandment. I don't have any she-she in my house. <laughs> And yet, I'm a member of a secret society, or my children dress up as ghosts at Halloween time. I'd say this person is rather short-sighted. In this society, I could understand, you know, going to Rosemary's Baby. I, I, not that I have any stomach for it myself, but I can understand somebody who's making that his lifetime study to help people be warned against it, seeing it, that sort of thing. But uh, uh, I, I can't see people doing things which are, in, even in a secular society, flagrantly associating with false religions and doing uh, religious practices displeasing to the Lord. Greg? In the behavioral uh, sciences, uh, they seem to be getting more and more involved in things that seem to be occultish. And uh, I was wondering, what would be the Christian's uh, duty as far as studying into these areas? Like, uh, there's... They're studying things like astral projection and the kind of biofeedback and this yeah. kind of thing. What, what would be the... Which Christians would be leading the field in that sort of thing? Because we're the only ones that will handle the information correctly and to the degree that it's necessary be requisitely objective about it. I mean, it's no secret that there are a lot of people who call themselves psychologists studying these things because they want to write books on the subject and they want to write books on the subject because they want to get rich. I mean, they have every reason to lean in favor of, you know, maybe there is something to biofeedback or to, uh, you know, uh, the rhythms and the cycles or astral projection or what have you. But you see, if Christians are studying that and debunking it where necessary and finding out, as in the case of studying witch doctor's formulas, to what degree there is positive medicinal value to it, um, it seems to me that's all right. Again, the issue here is hearkening to the wizard, hearkening to the diviner, dabbling in these things as a form of submission to them, recognizing some other divine power and direction other than the Lord. How much should you take into account um, being a witness to others by going to the reading, reading their, you know, carrying around a copy of um, you know, Satan's Bible or whatever? Mm -hmm. um, well, a lot. I mean, anytime you do anything that's going to prevent somebody from coming to the Lord uh, when the Lord hasn't required you to do it, it's something that Paul exhorts you to you know, be very careful about. He does all things for the sake of gaining all men, right? Yes, but since you say, you know, um, the issue is whether or not you submit to it, worship. Yeah. Well, but you're, so you're bringing up another question. You're not really asking about the occult now. You're asking about what, may I do anything that's a stumbling block to others coming to Christ? And obviously you cannot. So it's not the occult itself. It's the fact that somebody seeing you read a book on the occult might improperly lead them to conclude that you're a member of the occult or something like that. That's not very common. But, I mean, if you knew that to be the case, there's somebody you rode, uh, on, every day you rode the bus, you were near somebody who had, you know, strange ideas like that, then, of course, if you were studying it and taking it to work to read or something, which, again, you have to have proper motivation and goals and all that, but if that were to 
be true, then you would want to keep it out of sight. But the reason for that is not because of the occult, not because you're fearful of its power or really dabbling in it, but you're studying it, and that studying will be misperceived by others. That's why we don't eat meats offered to idols. Not because there's anything wrong with the meat, but because there's something wrong with making your brother stumble. Yeah. Is ASP necessarily an occult? It's the same. I mean, you're asking a factual question similar to Greg's, and Christians ought to be studying that. Is I mean, it does not seem to me that we a priori that is from the beginning without empirical study, can say there is not some kind of sense that people have that go beyond the, the five daily common garden variety senses that we're familiar with. I mean, there's an awful lot done by way of um, sensationalism with ESP and that sort of thing. But totally apart from the sensationalism, it doesn't strike me as wrong to have a quasi-scientific study to what degree there might be a sense in which when my children are in distress, there's a way of communication that is not through the five senses. And there's nothing that I know of in the Bible that says only by the five senses do we learn things. Now, whether there is a sixth sense or ESP, I'm in no position to say. I mean, not as an, an ethicist, but somebody who studies the subject. If you study the subject, that does not mean you're giving it credence, nor does it mean that you're dabbling in it or submitting to it. But on the other hand, um, even those who are studying it scientifically have to be very careful that they don't start confusing their loyalties and recognizing the true sovereign. I want to give you as balanced an uh, approach to this as I can. It'd be very easy to say, just out with the whole thing, without taking into account these distinctions, but uh, the distinctions are necessary, lest we, we bind people's consciences beyond what the Word of God allows. Let's go on to the next question of secret societies. Now, membership in such societies is very common among professing Christians, especially in American Presbyterianism, and uh, I've noticed especially, again, in the South. And it's often very difficult to persuade people that there's anything wrong with association with these societies. Many reformed bodies do oppose membership in these kinds of organizations, but even those denominations like the OPC or the CRC and others that oppose it have members of secret societies still in their churches. Well, what's the problem with belonging to a secret society? Well, first of all, the oath of secrecy. I'm not sure Scripture permits us to pledge secrecy in advance of knowing what we are to keep secret. I hope you'll keep that in mind the next time somebody says, Now, do I have your word that you won't tell anybody else before I tell you what I'm going to tell you? Can you have a blank check commitment to silence? I'm not sure you can. But, I mean, that's, that's, we're just scratching the surface. I'm going to go further on this. How about the bond of brotherhood? Masons are expected to help other Masons before they help anyone else. By the way, if you've ever lived in a society where Masons are members of certain uh, unions and so forth, and you're not a member of that union or a member of the Masonic order, you know what it is to try to find work. It's very difficult. Masons will take care of Masons. The Brotherhood of Masonry takes precedence over all other relationships it is taught in Masonic literature. And yet Scripture calls Christians to give their utmost and profound loyalty to the body of Christ. Not to Masons first, but to Christ's children first. Well, that's getting a little more serious. The oath of secrecy, I have some reservations about that. This bond of brotherhood, I wonder about conflicting loyalties. But now thirdly, what about the religious rites of Masonry? Can a Christian join in prayer, the reading of scripture, or other kinds of religious ceremonies? And there are some rather weird ones in these secret societies. Can a Christian partake in these, which are not being carried on in the name of Christ? And in which, mind you, all the worshippers are explicitly invited to pray to their own gods, whether they be Jews or Christians or Hindus or what have you? Can a Christian partake of a religious worship which is not in the name of Christ and directed to Christ exclusively? It's at this point, totally apart from secrecy and brotherhood, that I say, no. That is, in fact, compromise with and the first commandment says we are to separate ourselves from all worship which is not worship to the living and true God. I am. I believe that Alcoholics Anonymous is, um, for the most part, not a religion in itself. That Alcoholics Anonymous tries to make use of wh whatever religious commitments the person has prior to that. And uh, for the application of its principles, there is no reason why a Christian could not apply its principles or make use of them in helping others. 
um, which is the Alcoholics Anonymous, is not, as the Masons, going through religious ceremonies, which, and they say, now look, you know, there are a thousand gods, you pick the one you want, and you pray to that one. That's a different thing altogether. Um, but now, getting back to Masonry, can, can a religion, uh, can a Christian take part in a religious rite which is not directed to Christ? And I'm saying no. Moreover, there is a, a specifically non-Christian character to Masonic theology. The Masons claim to have found the essence of all religion, of which Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and the rest are only forms. They claim to have found the essence, the kernel of all religion, and Christianity is but one form of it. God is said to be the father of all men totally apart from Jesus Christ. Scripture references are constantly distorted and taken out of context in the Masonic order, especially that one, the stone which the builders rejected. Salvation is said to be available through all religions, and the morality taught by the Masonic literature is based on nature, not on Scripture. And scriptural law is not ex itself explicitly obligatory. So I don't believe that a Christian can take part in a secret society like the Masons. Well, consider this response. What if somebody says, now a Christian can use Masonry to further God's purposes in common grace? And I realize some of us shudder at the name common grace again. I mean, that covers a multitude of sins, and in this case covers at least one form of sin, this common grace of God. This person says, it's useful to encourage false religions and natural morality since God uses these things to restrain sin in the world. So why shouldn't I be a Mason to restrain sin in the world? My reply is God does use such religions and moralities to restrain sin in the world. In fact, he even uses evil itself to further his purposes. Does that mean that we can partake of evil since God uses it to further his purposes? You see, the secret things belong to the Lord our God and the revealed things belong to us and our children, to all generations. We aren't to say, now God can make use of this and therefore it's all right. We're to say, God tells me what I can and cannot do and then make our judgment on that basis. God does not give his approval to evil just because he uses evil. He doesn't give his approval to false worship just because he can make use of false worship. Scripture never calls on believers to give any form of encouragement to false worship or false doctrine. In fact, Scripture gives us commands to just the contrary effect. All right. Questions about secret societies in the first commandment. I realize this is kind of block form. You know, there's this question, bam, this question, bam, but... Time is short, and I really want to run through some relevant things for you, George. As a pastor, George, you're asking me a question about how can you be suaviter in moto? How can you be gentle and polite in your manner? And, of course, there is no factory answer to that, like all cases fit it. Um, I can imagine a pastor having to go into a situation where he preaches on it in the very first Sunday and condemns it with all his vigor. Of course, I know that there are people residing in the very city of Jackson who would teach you that you never do that. I honestly believe some pastors ought to split churches. But, I mean, I've got a bad reputation anyway, I guess. <laughs> so... I can, I can understand where you just have to draw the line. And I can understand you could have to draw it very early sometimes. On the other hand, there is everything to be remembered about patience, edification, gradually teaching people so that they can see it on their own or see it in context or, or be persuaded of it when you finally get to the punchline, if you will. Um, and that is what we ought to be doing, trying to be suaviter and moto, winsome in showing people these things. But on the other hand, we must not compromise with it. All I'm saying is you're not compromising if you take the first year of your pastorate and preach on maybe half of the sins of the Bible and don't get to all of them. Okay? Uh, I can't answer that question because it depends on the circumstance. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that... Yeah, that, that's possible, but you see, then again, you send a man a book unbeknownst to him, and it can sometimes aggravate him, he'll go running to his pastor and say, see what these cranks are saying? You don't believe this, do you? And all of a sudden, the fat's in the fire. 
You see what I'm getting at? You're right. Maybe that's a way to handle it. But again, I'm, I don't want to give a blanket endorsement to any method of dealing with it. The methods have to do with the individual, the circumstance, and all that. Uh, I would not encourage you to compromise, and I would encourage you to preach on it. And I dare say you preach on this in the South. I may have stepped on toes tonight that I don't know about. I'm very happy to, that I have not inquired. I don't know which of you might or might not be members of secret societies or have families that have involvement. But um, you see, that makes it easier on me. I'm leaving the area. <laughs> I just want to tell you what I really believe the Word of God teaches. But if I were your pastor, I'd have to do that as well. <laughs> That's all right. We have Christians everywhere you go, too. All right, how about secular schools and labor unions? Remember we talked about not compromising with unbelief and not partaking, separating yourself from unbelievers who, who participate in these false religions. Now, these organizations are not cultic. That is, they are not explicitly religious organizations in the sense of uh, the Masons with religious rights. Understand that? A school and a labor union is not a, a church, per se, or a society that's a religious one in the, in the narrow sense. Nevertheless, many such organizations set forth ideologies which are inconsistent with Christianity, such as Marxism, or welfare statism, or humanism, secularism, so forth. Set forth ideologies that a Christian cannot compromise with, which Christians are not to have their children subject to. Many of these organizations limit the freedom of their members to express and apply the Christian faith. Because they are supposed to be pluralistic, no distinctive Christian influence can be had in the society, in the school, in the labor union, or what have you. And so does the first commandment require separation from secular schools and labor unions? Well, mere association with secular schools and labor unions is not sinful, or else you'd have to withdraw from the world. Paul and Jesus uh, both have injunctions about not leaving the world in order to have our influence on it. So, um, Scripture does not uh, tell us that we can't have anything to do with them. And, of course, Scripture uh, doesn't forbid the support of organizations like this. I mean, Caesar may take his taxes and apply it to government schools or even uh, government-financed labor unions and so forth. You may have to pay union dues to have a job in, in your particular um, uh, field. You may have to go to a secular university to get a Ph.D. in the, um, in the field of your calling and so forth. But, of course, it would be very sinful for us to adopt non-Christian ideas or practices because we are part of or involved in such organizations, especially when those organizations make the adoption of these non-Christian ideas a condition of membership. So imagine that I go to a university, a secular university, to get a degree in philosophy, and in order to get the degree, I have to renounce commitment to an, to an inerrant Bible. Because anybody who believes in an inerrant Bible is obviously a hopelessly uh, confused, fundamentalist, obscurantist who doesn't belong in the 20th century. And no decent school is going to give such a person a Ph.D. in philosophy. Well, I've tried to draw the picture rather clearly. Obviously there. It may not be wrong to go to a secular school. It may be the only school that offers a degree in philosophy. But if a condition of granting the degree is compromised, then one must not have the degree. That is hearkening to false teaching. And, of course, secondly, there's always the danger of exposing ourselves to temptation. It's always dangerous to expose yourself to false teaching unnecessarily. And it's especially dangerous to expose those who are not well-grounded in the faith to false teaching. We are to focus our attention, the Bible says, on those things which are true, honorable, and pure. That doesn't mean we're to be ignorant of evil, but it does mean that we are to... Um, not let our minds be so saturated that they're poisoned with it. And that means, of course, that Christians must seriously consider whether they should send their children, their young children, to public schools. I think in general, in almost every case that I can think of, not all, but in almost every, this is a very bad idea. Secular schools um, are exposing our young people to temptations, to poisonous teaching, to day-in and day-out influence, which is in fact going to lead them to hearken to false teaching and to non-Christian practices, ideologies, and uh, ways of life. But of course there are places where Christian schools are not existent, aren't there? Or where even those that are Christian schools give inadequate education. I realize that's a shame to the name of Jesus Christ. 
But the fact remains that some that call themselves Christian schools, in fact, don't give education at all, or at least not very adequate. Or there are some schools that call themselves Christians that foster seriously false notions of Christianity. And so I can't say that in every situation a person wouldn't go to a secular school. I mean, I'm a product of secular schools in one sense. All the way through high school I went to secular schools, had no option, really. And when I got my Ph.D., I had no option. There is no Christian school offering a Ph.D. in philosophy. Um, so I'm not, and of course, the fact that I did it doesn't make it right either. But I want, you, I want to make it clear that I can understand why sometimes it's not possible for a Christian to have his children in Christian schools. But in general, I want to say that I think secular schools come very close, all things being equal, to a violation of the First Commandment, turning over our children to compromise with our faith. Brad. One of the problems that uh, we as pastors, uh, potential pastors face is uh, accepting calls to areas where uh, there is no Christian school. Yes. Uh, should we, we have children, young children, should we refuse to call on that ground? Most of these questions are falling into the same pattern of, of an answer. That depends on the circumstances. It really does. Um, I think that's a very serious consideration, and it ought to be a very high priority in, in considering where you will move anytime, uh, be it a call to the pastorate or a transfer in IBM to another city. Uh, when you don't have a, um, a church that you can worship in or a school to send your children to, that's something to take very seriously. But now, how can I put a... a quantitative figure on it. How can I measure it and say, well, now that has an 80% priority and then uh, it, it really depends. My wife taught in a secular school when I was in seminary, just to give you an illustration. And it turned out she taught in a school district that was very conservative and uh, had very high religious stand standards uh, as a whole in the community. It was rather unusual given the common secular liberal trend of our day. Now, she didn't she didn't agree to teach there on that basis, mind you. But my point is, if I were living in that community and there were no Christian school, I could understand that God might want me to minister to the people in that community because the schools are not so bad that I couldn't counteract the influence at home. That's not the sort of judgment you come to just snap. You know, you say, oh, yeah, well, we can overcome anything, right? No, I mean, but with due caution and consideration, I could see in some very conservative areas that even the state schools might not be so misleading that you couldn't, uh, you couldn't go into the situation. Of course, in the situation, I think you ought to do whatever you can to start forming a Christian school board and society, what have you. Um, all I'm trying to avoid doing is going beyond the Word of God by saying, well, that means you never can take a call when there's no Christian school. But I think, again, it's like the general prohibition. I think, for the most part, we ought to weigh very seriously what it means when we turn over our children to a humanist education eight hours a day. It could be a violation of the First Commandment, and I think, for the most part, usually is. But I don't want to say it always must be, because in the nature of the case, God calls us to places as missionaries where there aren't any Christian schools. I mean, Christian, the Christianization of the world is a gradual process. And somebody's got to be out on the field. Maybe it ought to be people without children. Uh, education is the, uh, is the responsibility of the family, is it not? So when we allow our children to go to secular schools, Aren't we uh, uh, compromising with with the state and that uh, calling the state God and that uh, they are uh, taking over? The, in other words, I believe that we might make a case for secular schools as being a violation of God's uh, uh, public institution, which is the family. For the most part, it usually is. The answer is the same. All things being equal, I agree with you. I just can't say that in a, as a blanket condemnation that there aren't circumstances where um, a person wouldn't have to go to something other than a Christian school. I found that necessary in my own experience, and I don't believe I sinned in doing it, although I'm sure that I committed sins in the process. I mean, the, the fact that I went to the school is not per se a sin. Annie? It is an alternative. It is alternative. Uh, however, my lecture tonight is not on ways of education, per se, but simply the question of, of separation from evil. And does God require separation from evil so that in each and every case, our kids cannot go to secular schools? And I'm saying for the most part, it is forbidden. Uh, but there are cases where it would obviously have to be um, allowed. Richard? Um, 
would you say that in the case of labor unions and stuff, that there's not something inherent within labor unions that's, that's a violation of the commandment? Of this commandment? Yes. Oh, okay, I was going to ask you then, uh, you know, what about the idea of striking for high wages and stuff like that? We'll talk about that under the Eighth Commandment, okay? okay. You see what I'm getting at? This is a question of cooperation with unbelievers. Now let's go to the question of cooperative evangelism and charity. What's the difference here? Well, now we're talking about with believers, or professing believers. Cooperation in ministries of the word and ministries of mercy um, can often involve religious fellowship and identification with others who are calling themselves brothers in Christ. And obviously such fellowship cannot be extended to those who we cannot recognize as believers. I mean, some people claim to be Christians, but, I mean, calling yourself a Christian relief organization doesn't mean you are, in fact, a Christian relief organization. If you cannot recognize this organization as a Christian one, then you cannot have fellowship, religious fellowship, with it. Such cooperation is forbidden to those who fail to give a credible profession of faith in Christ. And so, in principle, I believe that excludes cooperation with theological liberals who intentionally and knowingly deny the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Which is to say, I do not think we ought to be on the platform praying with, condoning, or giving benedictions when there are, in fact, theological liberals involved. Nor can we recognize as ministries of the word in an evangelistic campaign men whom we deem unfit for the gospel ministry, even if we would recognize them as brothers in Christ. I'm taking the point a step further. What if I can recognize this man as a brother in Christ, but don't think he's fit for the ministry? Do you believe Arminians ought to be ordained to the ministry of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that they are fit for the ministry if they do not hold a form of sound doctrine? If you do not believe that they ought to be ordained to the ministry of Jesus Christ, can you support organizations which ordain them to the ministry of Jesus Christ? I recognize that I'm stepping on very hallowed ground for many people today, but I cannot see that the principles are all that difficult. If you will not ordain an Arminian in your denomination, how can you give denominational money to the support of ordained Arminians? <laughs> it's really crystal clear. The difficulty is that calls for a kind of negativism and criticism that we think, that often we think, is less than Christian. But having said all this, remember that Jesus did pray that his people would be one. Given these negative principles, the door is still open for significant amounts of cooperation. In the final analysis, there is only one Church of Jesus Christ, and all believers are in that Church of Jesus Christ. Cooperation across denominational boundaries is somewhat feeble. It's a struggling attempt to increase the visibility of the one Catholic Church, not Roman Catholic, but the genuinely Catholic Universal Church of Jesus Christ. But we must be very careful that when we do involve ourselves in cooperation, that it not come to the point of doing things that we would not do in our own denomination or cooperating with apostasy and so forth. And that brings me to the fifth question, and I might as well deal with it since it's right on the tip of my tongue. What about apostate churches? That's not right. Okay, apostate churches. Going back just a minute to the idea of uh, not ordained, being willing to ordain someone, what about, say, the difference between a Baptist and a Presbyterian? A Presbyterian wouldn't ordain a Baptist to the Presbyterian ministry, and yet he would have him preach. You sure? <laughs> yeah. So it wouldn't be simply on the basis of the fact that you wouldn't ordain them. I wouldn't have a. I certainly wouldn't have him preach on an area of disputed doctrine. I mean, we can start at the easy point. Um, I think the question is, you know, at what point does um, uh, does the disagreement in theology amount to a significant departure from the pattern of wholesome words that the Scripture lays down? Uh, I believe that um, a refusal to to baptize your infants is an important and um, something you shouldn't ignore. I mean, it's an important theological question. Although you're right, I would allow a Reformed Baptist to preach. I wouldn't allow him to preach on the covenant or on baptism. Um, 
However, Arminians, you see, are in a different park altogether, a ballpark altogether, and they're in a different league. I, from, for my money, that's a significant denial of the very doctrines of grace. It amounts to a form of will worship and self-sufficiency and therefore a, a repudiation of the grace of God. And when it comes to that point in your evaluation, it doesn't seem to me that you can say, well, we wouldn't have them in our church, but since some other churches ordained you, that's all right. What I'm saying is I, I, there are probably degrees here that have to be recognized. And uh, for my money, I'd have Al Martin preach on limited subjects. As much as I like Al Martin, and as powerful a preacher as he is, the fact of the matter is that um, if the Bible teaches something, we've got to take it seriously enough that we don't compromise on it. At least on our confessional points, okay? That's why you have a confession, as a badge of what your distinctives will be. Uh, down in Coral Ridge, they have a uh, cooperative evangelism program, I guess, in many respects, because you have Lutherans, and you have Anglicans, and they're teaching them how to present the gospel now. What's that wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I believe we ought to teach Lutherans and Anglicans how to evangelize, too. Provided they haven't done so much that they have to teach us. That's the embarrassing thing sometimes. But granted that we have an evangelism program, I mean, if we grant the assumption we have an evangelism program honoring to God and so forth, nothing wrong with teaching it to other believers. The question is whether we can cooperate in their evangelistic efforts if they deny the doctrines of grace or something like that. And again, it's a matter of degree. I have... I have real difficulty with cooperation with remonstrance, just because remonstrance do not hold a pattern of sound doctrine. In other words, you might want to say a Reformed Baptist departs at a particular point, whereas a remonstrant, an Arminian, depart, departs in principle. That is at a fundamental, basic level. Now, doesn't it seem also, too, that, uh, that really when you think about it, that uh, Reformed Baptists also... Uh, are out of accord with the system of doctrine which is taught by the confession of faith. For example, it seems like we're saying yes. that the covenant of grace is really a minor subpoint to be honored. Oh, I don't say that at all. What I'm saying is, however, I can recognize that they do honor the doctrines of grace, and I would not want anybody who was not uh, uh, a covenant theologian to preach on elements explicitly of the covenant or of infant baptism or something like that. It's a question of where you draw the line. I recognize that. But I hope you can see that there's a difference between a person who says, in some sense, we save ourselves, and a person who says God saves us, but um, there's not a covenant context for our children. It is a departure from the system of truth of the Bible. Well, what about uh, giving money to, to someone who views himself as having a specific um, role? For example, uh, you know, I saw on television several weeks ago an Arminian I think James Robinson, who really has been uh, preaching against sin in the way that, that you don't hear any Calvinists preaching against it, and, and he understands his role as, as, a, as an address to this country, which is uh, crumbling around, and he has a very specific role in preaching against the social sin. Yeah. And it, it seems like in, in a way you could, you could understand getting more... Depends on the gospel that he preaches. If he preaches any other gospel but that that the apostles brought, he's anathema. But on the other hand, if he preaches free salvation in Jesus Christ and makes mistakes, you know, in application here and there, then that's another matter. See, again, um, many of your questions, and I don't want you to hesitate to do this, but I want you to understand why I'm going to be ginger about answering some of them. Many of your questions depend on what? Factual premises. I mean, I would have to know an awful lot about James Robinson or the particular Reformed Baptist in question or the, uh, uh, the secular school in the community uh, that we're talking about. Um, you have to know the fact and you have to weigh these things given your Christian principles. I'm not talking about compromising your principles, but I'm saying you can't apply your principles until you know the facts of the situation. I can imagine, given the information you've given me, supporting a man who would not come out explicitly as a Calvinist on you know, the famous five points of Calvinism. He may be a four-point Calvinist or three-point Calvinist, but his ministry is advancing in a certain area. I can understand giving money to a friend of mine who's a Wycliffe translator, even though I wouldn't want him to write a systematic theology. I do want him to translate the Gospel of Mark for certain tribesmen. All right? But um, in all these things, you have to start just making distinctions between what you would do as a church, what you would do as an individual, what you would do with one Arminian, oh, not an Arminian, we've already, uh, I have anyway in principle ruled that out, but what you would do with one person who is inconsistent about the doctrines of grace and another person. I mean, some people are more consistent and less consistent. And I just I just want the class to understand that it's not because I want to waver on any of these things, it's just because it depends on the facts. 
And given your evaluation of the facts, I'm trying to tell you what principles do come to bear on it. And in some salient, and I hope clear cases, I'm giving illustrations. By the way, if I ever give an illustration that you don't think is clear, uh, then really bring up that especially, because I'm trying to illustrate where I think it should be obvious, and then I leave it to you to start drawing you know, the lines up to that point. Greg? Do you know enough of the facts of the Anita uh, Bryant Ministries uh, to say whether Reformed Christians should donate to... Uh, no. We'll talk about that later. I know some things and I don't know others. And I support some things and I don't support others. Let me just give an example there. Because you all know I've written a book on homosexuality. I believe in their execution and all that. So I think I have a pretty hard-nosed attitude about homosexuality. And you might say, well, then Anita Bryant would obviously be something I'd want to support. Well, yes and no. Anita Bryant is perhaps one of the bravest Christians that's lived in the 20th century, and I mean that without any tongue-in-cheek. I, I honestly believe she is one person who said, I'll put my life on the line, I'll put my career, my reputation, my family, everything on the line, even if it's for one principle of the Word of God. And I respect her very much, much more than myself. I think she suffered a great deal and has risked a lot more than I have in any venture of my own. And on the other hand, she can be the most embarrassing advocate of the same position I hold imaginable. She gives interviews in Playboy magazine that just appall me. She, she, I mean, she just does things and says things which give rise to such abuse from our opponents that I almost wonder if it doesn't hurt the cause, specifically of anti-homosexuality in society. So I don't know enough of the facts to make a judgment. And that's why I'll probably choose my illustrations. And you can keep trying me, but pretty much when you, when you, give, a, when you give me a specific illustration, you'll find that I'll give you a yes and a no sort of thing and leave it to you to, to find out more about it. And that's for a reason. One, I don't have all the time in the world to mention every right and wrong thing. And then secondly, I'm not in a position to know enough to say that. And so I'll usually choose my own illustrations. And if you give me one, and, it, and it's just one that hadn't occurred to me, and I know something on it, I'll, I'll give you an answer. I won't waver. And I hope you don't think I'm wavering on these, but I'm just not going to say where I don't have the knowledge to say. Brad? Did, I thought I saw your hand. Don. I'm sorry, Don. Can we get The same, the same principle of cooperative evangelism has to do with, um, that's a ministry of the word. Now, in ministries of mercy, ministries of charity, the same thing applies. Um, I have difficulty in cooperating with ministries of mercy that are not the mercy of Jesus Christ, not a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. The problem I have is that uh, how do we go about giving money to people the hungry? You know, uh, if there are no distinctive Christian organizations that are doing that, if you have a burden for that, and there are no distinctively Christian organizations, and it seems to me the conclusion of that syllogism is obvious, then you ought to be starting one. Okay. <laughs> See, you're embarrassing all of us, not yourself when you ask that question, because what you're saying is, well, now, what if we have this burden for the needy and there's no vehicle for doing it? What a shame that the, a Christian church should ever have to say that. We have no vehicle for taking care of uh, flood victims here or tornado victims there or earthquake victims in South America or what have you. We ought to have relief organizations. Just for an example, though, what if I attempt to try to get an organization like that started? It falls through. Am I to continue not to give you know, food to the hungry uh, because no such organization? I think whatever money you give, you must do everything within your power to make sure it's given in the name of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's say there's a general organization taking care of flood victims in Mississippi or in Jackson. Okay, and that's the only one. Now, that is not the case here. But if that were the only one, and Christians, if they were going to be of any help at all, have to be helpful through that organization for some reason. Again, it has to be a pretty desperate situation where we can't do it our, our own way. But if that's the way it is then we ought to do everything within our power to make sure that this $3,000 gift from this church comes in the name of the, of, uh, the XYZ Presbyterian Church of so-and-so so that they at least know that these are uh, funds uh, coming from Christ's people. And sometimes Jesus uh, healed the sick without preaching the gospel, so to I don't know, did he? Are, well, it seems that sometimes I mean, he did Ten lepers, only one came back. What did he say to the one who came back? Sounds like the gospel to me. Your faith has made you fall. No, I don't know of any illustrations. If you can come up with them, we'll, we'll deal with them. Okay, how about apostate churches? 
we've stepped on a few toes tonight, and I suppose we'll step on a few more now, but some things have to be said. Scripture does not directly address the question of, of an apostate church. I have seen one very clever, oh, many clever arguments from the condition of Old Covenant Israel. Uh, Old Covenant Israel was apostate at many times. Um, and an Israelite wasn't to, on his own discretion, leave Israel, of course. Um, but the difference is that the Jews were bound to Israel by birth, by circumcision, priesthood, temple, and they had no alternative. It wasn't as though you could leave Israel and join uh, a better church somewhere else on earth. And that's just the nature of, of the pre-Christian era, and we must recognize that. Arguments coming out of that circumstance and based upon the unique peculiarities of that circumstance are not very good arguments today. No divine provision exists to free us from... Um, well, let me back up. When God established the new covenant, he then drew a, dis- a, di- a distinction and drew a separation between the Christian church and the old covenant people of God who had become apostate by not believing in the Messiah. God established a new denomination, if you will. Not really. He established a new church and renounced the old Jewish church as a synagogue of Satan. Now, when, when, when God does that, obviously there's no difficulty. The, there was no Old Testament provision for it. And there's no New Testament provision beyond that which God has already done in terms of separation. The New Testament does not recognize the possibility of an apostate church because it is assumed that apostates will demonstrate their apostasy by leaving the church, 1 John 2.19, or by being disciplined by the church, uh, for instance, 1 Corinthians 5. That is, the assumption is that the church is going to be clearly the church. Because it is assumed that apostates will demonstrate their apostasy by leaving the church, 1 John 2.19, or by being disciplined by the church, uh, for instance, 1 Corinthians 5. That is, the assumption is that the church is going to be clearly the church. And yet the scriptures don't guarantee that any particular church organization is going to remain faithful to the return of Christ. It cannot be argued, I'm saying, that Christians are bound to a visible church organization in the same way that Israel is bound to the visible temple and visible Aaronic priesthood. Christ now is our temple. Christ now is our priest. Christ now is our one mediator. Moreover, it's doubtful that any denomination today can claim the title church on a New Testament basis. I don't really think in the New Testament church is um, applied to our conception of a denomination. The church is applied to local assemblies, to city churches, presbyteries, we would call them, to the church universal. But it's not applied to anything like a modern denomination. Denominations are a makeshift. And as a post-millennialist, I believe they're a makeshift until Christ restores purity to his church and unity of worship. But having said all that, so that I guard the biblical principles about God giving the right for separation, the one true church, and all that, there is scriptural warrant for separation. When a particular organization loses the defining marks of the church, which classically are considered the preaching of the apostolic word, the right administration of the sacraments, and discipline, when a particular organization lacks those marks, then separation is warranted. Or when membership in an organization requires us to commit sin, separation is warranted. I'll give you two examples, which I deem clear examples. I mean, so now, I mean, if you want to put up a balloon to shoot at, I'll put one up for you, a couple. In 1936, many men left the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America on the ground that they were required to support false teaching as a condition of membership because J. Gresham Machen was told that he was required and all members of the Presbyterian Church were required to support the missions agencies of the church, and those missions agencies supported people like Pearl Buck. Therefore, it became, in fact, a requirement to support false teaching. And I believe that was warrant for Machen and others to leave that church. More recently, uh, I'll only use one illustration, more recently when the Presbyterian Church in the United States began to pay for abortions, which God deems to be murderous, it seems to me that a warrant that was warrant existing for separation from murderous practice. Now, separation may not be said to be required only on these grounds that um, 
the defining marks of the church have been lost or uh, sin has become necessary in supporting the church. Uh, there may be other grounds. I wouldn't want to argue that it's forbidden in every other instance. I think a person might leave a church or a denomination to join another church or denomination for many reasons, to find a greater opportunity for developing and using his gifts, something like that. It's important, however, that whenever enmity or strife play a role in the division between believers, that the division is not allowed to prevent reconciliation. All right? We must keep in mind that whenever reconciliation is possible, we should do what we can to pursue it. Please, here, especially be careful of oversimplifying the issues. Some case law references on what? Yeah. Gave them earlier. Remember, the, the, uh, this commandment of separation requires separation from those who practice false worship. I gave Exodus 12, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 21, Exodus 23, Ezra 4, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 23, Deuteronomy 25, 27. Yeah, there's a lot of references on that sort of thing. And uh, we are we must separate from all compromise with false religion. 2 Kings 5, Joshua 23, Ezra 4, Exodus 23, Exodus 34, Numbers 23, Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 16. Yes? Excuse me, your principal here is... Having separation from a church because they support abortion or something like that. Our income tax support abortion and the ERA and things like that. Yes. So could I use the same principle and refuse to pay my income tax or the, the portion of my tax which goes to pay for abortion? No. When Jesus when Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he was special, he was just, uh, in particular holding the coin that had Caesar's image. When Caesar requires that coin bearing his image, you give it to him until the day that you are an outward revolt against Caesar. And in that day, you don't pay your taxes to Caesar because you do not recognize him as your sovereign, as your king. And the day may come when we have to actually take up arms and be in revolt against the government of the United States because it's slaughtering innocent people. See, I don't deny that that day may come, but we're far from that day. We have a lot of other recourses as Christians, and tax revolt is not one of them because Jesus said we are to pay our taxes. Paul says, render, you know, tribute to whom tribute is due. And so we pay our taxes. The difference between that and a church is that the church is a voluntary organization. And we are not to voluntarily pay money to those who murder innocent children. I feel very strongly on that. It's offended some people that I feel strongly on that. Um, but the issue is whether the Word of God teaches these things. And I think it does teach separation from apostasy with respect to discipline. But apostasy in the government doesn't allow us to separate from the government until such time that that apostasy reaches such proportions that there's no redress, the gospel is suppressed, the innocent uh, are being slaughtered, and that sort of thing. And then I believe the people do have a right to claim that the sovereign is no, that the man who claims to be sovereign is in fact not the minister of God. Would slaughtering or would abortion be considered slaughtering the innocent? That's what I'm referring to. But my point is, we have other we have a commandment to give our taxes. Okay? There's no commandment to support apostate churches. We have a commandment to give our taxes even to a Nero. But the day may come, I'm saying, when we wouldn't have to give our taxes, when, in fact, we, we are in revolt against the government. But we're far from that day right now, mind you. But I, I think you must pay your taxes until, in fact, you become subject to another allegiance. Doesn't that make sense? I don't believe in limited revolt, in other words. I, I won't pay my taxes, but I will obey the speed limits and, uh, and honor the President of the United States and all that. It can become that, yeah. So we do have slaughtering of the innocent right now, so why... But we have other forms of redress right now also, like constitutional amendments, persuasion, and all the rest. The day could come when we can't preach against abortion, when we can't do anything to legally outlaw it, when, in fact, we can't re restrain it and all that, and it's, being ta it's taking place on such a widespread scale and our tax money is being used for it that we have no alternative but to say that we cannot honor this government any longer. Just like... A, uh, a godly German ought not to have honored the government of Hitler eventually or uh, the government of Idi Amin or something like that. So in other words, I'm not saying the day may not come, but I do want to make very clear, and please, I hope you'll portray this to others if you ever discuss it in my views, I don't think we're anywhere close to that day. We have far too much that we can do as, as Americans 
before we are to take up arms and say we no longer honor the government of the United States because of its killing of the innocent. Although, I hope you know I'm duly concerned about abortion. I'd love to see a constitutional amendment forbidding it to protect them. Other questions on the First Commandment? Let me tell you the difficulty we're getting into. We have about 12 minutes left, and then three hours after this, and we spent all this time only on one of the Ten Commandments. And I've brushed off some questions with very quick answers, and I've only given a little bit of my notes that are before me. If nothing else, will you please begin to appreciate how much the Word of God contains and how much it requires and how little study of it we've done. Okay, the second commandment now. <laughs> no, nah, I wasn't so self-serving as to make that application. <laughs> Thou shalt not make unto thee a graven image, nor any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not, thou shalt, shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing loving kindness unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. The focus of this commandment uh, narrowly speaking, is that it forbids the making of images for the purpose of bowing to them. That is, doing homage to them as representations of deity or as media through which God draws near to people. We are not to make images that represent God or which are an agency or, or media uh, medium for God to draw near to us. The context of the commandment um, specifically is that of worship. Um, upon first reading, this commandment has led some to think that it forbids all image-making, all image-making, therefore forbidding all art. That is, no sculptor, uh, no painting, no uh, picturing of any sort. However, um, other considerations counteract that first impression, I think, rather decisively. Scripture never suggests that there's anything wrong with art in itself. Only, uh, there are only passages that say art for false religious purposes is wrong. Scripture not only permits, but it in fact it, it warrants the use of ornamentation and in the making of pictures, like the pictures of the cherubim, bells, and, prom, and uh, pomegranates in the um, in the construction of the temple. Um, the Hebrew term allows for idolatrous as well as non-idolatrous uses of the same item. A pillar may be an idolatrous pillar in some context. And in another context, it can be used in a good sense, the word for pillar in Hebrew. Um, so keep that in mind, that, that it is not really a very contextual or accurate linguistic reading of the Second Commandment to think that it deals with all art, all picturing or image-making. What it really forbids is representations of deity. The commandment does not forbid all religious uses of images. As I said, they were used in the tabernacle and in temple worship. But it does forbid the use of images as a representation of God. The Bible forbids molten gods, Exodus 20, 24, Leviticus 19. And it forbids erecting images or pillars for the purpose of bowing down to them, Leviticus 26, verse 1. Now, obviously, the second commandment is forbidding making images of false gods, isn't it? I mean, the first commandment forbids false gods. So you're not supposed to have images of false gods either. The point of the second commandment goes beyond, then, false gods. It goes beyond idolatry. What the second commandment deals with is representations of the living and true God. All false gods have already been condemned. The second commandment then specifically deals with representations of Jehovah by images. And the commandment is warranted in Deuteronomy 4 by the fact that Israel saw no form of God at Sinai. If you read Exodus 32 carefully, you'll see that the golden calf was intended to be an image of Jehovah, for God condemned it. In 1 Kings 12, verses 28 and following, the calves which were made by Jeroboam were intended to represent Jehovah. But again, the people are condemned, not for worshiping a false god, but for worshiping God in a way that he has not ordained. 
Now, let me just say something about bowing down to wood and stone. Bowing down to wood and stone doesn't necessarily mean that the wood and stone are considered divine. Image worship, even image worship in pagan religions, is generally more sophisticated than that. Now, while there have been some very primitive religions that thought God was identified with the wood or stone, for the most part, even pagans are not quite that crude. They consider the wooden stone to be media, a medium of communication or representation between God and, and the people. God draws near to the people. The people draw near to God through this agency of the wood or stone idol. And so I think the commandment here in the law of God is forbidding not only uh, primitive, crude forms of belief in deity made up of material objects, that is, a wooden god or a stone god, it's also uh, condemning the more refined sacramentalism that says that through means of the image I can draw near to God. And as you can see, I'm beginning to step on the toes of our Roman Catholic brethren. The traditional Roman Catholic defense of... Um, uh, their relics, uh, their statues, and other such things, or their pictures of Christ, pictures of Mary. The traditional defense is we are not worshiping these things as God. These are only aids to worship. Well, you see, that is not really so much different from refined or sophisticated forms of paganism that use wooden stone as aids to worship, drawing near to God by means of them. I'm trying to skip over some of the um, some of this material. Cert there are um, grounds offered in the Bible for this commandment that might be mentioned. Um, Deuteronomy 4 mentions the invisibility of God. The invisibility of God. Um, that's a rather paradoxical doctrine in scripture. I think I should note that. The invisible God is said to be seen on some occasions. God makes himself seen in theophanies. God was certainly seen in the person of Jesus Christ. He was not just a mirage. Yes? How is uh, the way that Lutherans use images different than Catholics? All you people jump ahead of the game. Let me finish the general introduction to the commandment and go to these... Um, uh, specific issues, and then we'll come back to that, okay? The ground for the commandment is the invisibility of God. Um, oh, boy. There's a lot of material on theophany that we might get into. Um, and I just can't decide whether I want to skip this much material without... Uh, Well, the second ground, uh, time's just going to run out if I don't. We'll never get to the other commandments. Uh, the second ground for this commandment, not only that God is invisible, but he's the living God. Idols can't see, hear, smell, speak, do things. They have no power, but the living and true God directs heaven and earth. Thirdly, we must have respect for the very structure of creation. In Exodus 20, all of creation is described. We are, images are prohibited of anything in heaven, earth, or sea. Now, that's a common scriptural way of describing the whole of creation, hearkening back to Genesis 1.26. The point, then, is that worship is to be focused on the Creator, not on anything which is created. Romans 1.25 says, Idolatry is worshiping and serving the creature, the creation, rather than the Creator. And, of course, the very dignity of man himself is at stake here. Man is the image of God. And therefore, when men make images of God, they are debasing themselves. God has created man as the apex of his created order. God has made man unique in that way. And so when men bow down to images of God that are made of wood or stone, uh, they're really denying their dignity in the created order. And so those who um, make idols are destroying themselves. And the Bible often has this polemic that the makers of idols will be made like unto them. And as we will be made like wood and stone, we will uh, become hardened in unbelief 
and blindness and inability to accomplish things. And then fourthly, God gives us a stimulation for obedience to this commandment, his jealousy. Not only his invisibility, not only the fact that he's the living and true God, not only that we are the apex of creation, his image, and not something else, but also God's jealousy. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 5. Notice also Hebrews 12, verse 29. God does not tolerate any deviation from the exclusiveness of our covenant loyalty to him and to him alone. Exodus 34:14 says that God's name is jealous. In Exodus 34:14, God's jealousy forbids the making of covenants with the inhabitants of the land. And that covenant jealousy is represented as a consuming fire to the Israelites, and that fire is threatening to them. In Exodus 19:22, we read that they were fearful lest Jehovah break forth upon them in flaming fire. All right. There are certain sanctions given as well. Not only is the, are we motivated to keep this, not, uh, we find grounds for this commandment in God's invisibility, that he's the living and true God, that it dishonors man as the image of God, and it violates or threatens uh, to be judged by the jealousy of God. But there are sanctions now given about this commandment, specifically visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and upon the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Um, let's ask this question first of all. Does that mean that children are punished for their father's sins contrary to Ezekiel 18? Ezekiel 18 says that the children are not to be punished for the father's sins. Well, I think in the commandment, the, pre the presupposition is that the children are as guilty as the fathers. And so the children are suffering for their own sins. And yet, in a sense, they also suffer for their father's sins. Not that they bear the penalty deserved by their fathers. Certainly not that the fathers go free and the children get, you see, the rod. But the iniquity of the fathers begins a process whereby the wrath of God is stored up and released, perhaps generations later, in his increased fury, as that sin is developed and developed through the generations. Now, of course, Scripture teaches there's a remnant that escapes that judgment. Nevertheless, God's wrath develops as the generations develop their sin and disobedience to the covenant Lord. And I think we must remember then that um, when we tolerate false religions in our land and false theologies, and when we say, well, our children go whatever way they wish, we really don't care, we are storing up wrath for a later day. Not that our children will be punished and we won't. We'll be punished too. But the point is there is, in history, a development and accumulation of the fury of God. And as the sin of the children develops, so does the fury of God. And eventually there will be collapse. Eventually there will be judgment. Eventually there will be a, um, uh, the, the due uh, retribution that will come upon a society that works out its sin. Moreover, in the Old Testament, there were civil sanctions against idolatry. The practice of idolatry was a capital crime. Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 to 7. Uh, we read in Deuteronomy 7 and 12 that the idols of Canaan were to be utterly destroyed. Not even the silver or gold was to be kept from them. And so note the emphasis upon the justice of God in this commandment, the seriousness of the sin, the sin of idolatry. The idolater hates God and treasures of wrath for himself and brings enormous spiritual damage on later generations. And so keep in mind the effects of our secular humanism in education, in the media, of uh, false theology in our own time. It is never a sign of pickiness, you see, when a man says we must keep our theology pure because, you see, the open door to deviation just stores up, you see, wrath in the future for those who will, who will take the deviation and work out its principle. One more note, and then we'll quit. On the other hand, God offers blessing to those who will keep this commandment, showing loving kindness unto a thousand generations of them that love me and keep my commandments. I can't help but bringing out my post-millennialism here. Notice the curse of God showing wrath upon even the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And yet God shows his mercy unto a thousand generations. Isn't that amazing? 
Grace superabounds, you see. God shows his, his loving kindness into a thousand generations to those who love him. Mercy is much greater than wrath. Note also the promise of material prosperity in Leviticus 26. God promises blessing to the whole person and to a whole society that will keep this commandment. And of course, ultimately, that promise is fulfilled only in Christ, the only righteous man from all the wicked generations numbering from Adam. Christ refused idolatry, even to gain the kingdoms of this world. And therefore, all the kingdoms of the world have become his, and all the kingdoms of the world have become ours in him. And we have blessings unmeasured because of him. Uh, we'll break at this point. Next week, I'll take, a, take up halfway on the second commandment. And I'm really going to have to, to shuffle through this material if we're going to get through commandment number 10. Uh, this much can be said. If we, um, if we do not get through the Ten Commandments, and I'll make every effort to do so, if we do not, at least I hope you're learning something by way of illustration of how to deal with the commandments, how to exegete them in their broad context, their specific wording, and how to make application of them. That in itself is a worthy project, and I'm, I'm only apologetic that I don't do it as well as I should. Before...